When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. There's something beneficial in allowing ourselves and in training ourselves to be with that which is difficult in ourselves, in our partners, in life, you know, and that when we do that, and I think that's the detachment part that you're keeping in your back pocket, you know, when, when we do that, when we allow ourselves to be uncomfortable, when we recognize that we're clinging a little bit to the pleasures that can't be sustained, you know, when we face those issues, something settles down in us and we're able to actually deal more effectively with the life that we're living, with the hand that we've been dealt. Mark Epstein, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. Very excited to have you. As I was saying before we started, I read the Tao Te Ching when I was 16, and it was utterly transformational. I studied Buddhism in college, but never really got into it as a part of my life. But find myself now that I'm in my mid 40s, and I talk a lot about the pursuit of fulfillment, I find myself talking about detachment that People need to have what I say, have in their back pocket detachment. So if you're ever being overwhelmed by your pursuits that you remember that you don't have to strive or cling, as you might say. And I'd love to dive into um, one, just quickly give people uh, a thumbnail sketch of how you've used Buddhism in a traditional um, therapy practice. And then I want to get into the tenets of Buddhism. Okay. Well, Buddhism and Taoism, you know, have a lot in common. And uh, I read the Tao Te Ching when I was 18 uh, in the context of first learning about Buddhism, Eastern thought in general. So um, that was like the first big philosophical, psychological, emotional, spiritual influence on me. I was... In what way? So you're 18. Yeah. Was... Freshman year in college. Is that the first time you read anything to do Any, with Eastern anything philosophy? Anything to do with, with Eastern philosophy. And yeah. why did it hit you? Um, there was a passage in a Buddhist collection of verse called the Dhammapada that's just entitled Mind. Uh, so, and I was oriented. I, I had some vague notion that maybe I could be a psychotherapist because it wasn't really work and I liked people and, uh, you know, I was attuned to uh, what was going on emotionally. But anyway, I, I read this chapter called Mind and it, it had a description of the untrained mind as being like a fish thrown on dry ground, flapping all day long, quivering. And I was like, oh, that's like what my mind is. Maybe I should read on, you know? Um, and then started talking about how it was possible to do something for a mind like that. And so I was immediately pulled in. 
And then, you know, I was a good reader. So uh, uh, every psychology course, every anthropology course, every trip to the spiritual bookstore, which was called the Sphinx in the basement of a building in Harvard Square, you know, would, would turn something up for me. Um, so I started delving in just all by myself, you know, through the books. But then uh, uh, circumstances led me to meet various uh, uh, now important Buddhist teachers who became my friends and, and uh, really influenced me. Uh, and so I was like six or seven years, like you know, Buddhism was the main thing I was interested in. And then I decided to go to medical school and become a psychiatrist and really become the therapist that I had imagined. Maybe, uh, maybe that was some kind of work I could do. So. Going back to the fish flopping and then we'll yes. dive into to Buddhism. I think that's part of why Taoism spoke to me. So at 16, my mind is going a mile a minute. I am in the grips of inferiority complex in the extreme. And there was something about the the concept of be like water, of letting go, of yeah. not holding on to things. Of There's there's just a, a serenity almost to the way that if Lao Tzu was really a person, like yeah. the way that they conveyed well, these ideas. he'd be a great therapist if Lao Tzu <laughs> was really a person. Yeah. And is that the thing that keyed you in, was you could actually feel your mind calming down? Um, I think the thing that keyed me in was, was the beauty of the verse, you, you know, that there was the possibility of my mind calming down or the possibility of being something other than my inferiority complex, you know? Uh, I remember I went to a, um, a psychotherapist in those days that they had at the university in the health service, because, uh, you know, inferiority complex is one way of describing, you know, how a young man might feel, you know, uh, as in his first or second year of college. Um, and I remember I unburdened myself to this guy who was a practitioner of short-term psychodynamic psychotherapy, which was popular in those days, in the 70s, this was. Uh, I unburdened myself. He was a very well-put-together guy, you know, beautiful suit, very, really nice shoes, I remember. Um, and at the end of three sessions, he said, oh, you know, your problem's there. It's um, uh, not that difficult, you know. It's like basically the Oedipus complex. And I, and I was like, Oedipus complex, like, but he didn't explain anything, you know, he was like, and so, uh, so my condition had a name, you know, but there was nothing that I could do about it. Uh, and then I met these Buddhist teachers who, uh, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Kornfield, Ram Dass, Sharon Salzberg, I met this whole slew of Buddhist teachers who were like, stop trying to figure out what's wrong with you and just like pay attention to who you are. You know, be more in what's already there, you know. And they taught me the very beginning of uh, how to meditate. And, and then I was like, I can't really do this, you know, like, am I doing it right? Uh, but I stayed with it. And uh, those questions are what everyone goes through, you know, am I doing, am I doing it right? So gradually, gradually, you know, the, the Tao that can be named is not the real Tao, you know. So, so I stopped trying to figure out what all this was about and just started to do it. And that gave me great confidence um, or great faith, you might say. And, and I've tried to bring that confidence or that faith into the practice of psychotherapy, you know, where somehow maybe I can 
infuse a little bit of that into other people's consciousness. And to help them settle their mind. To help them settle their mind or their heart, open their heart, settle their heart, you know, be in their body, connect their mind to their body, connect their heart to their mind. There are various ways to talk about it. It's really interesting that that ends up being sort of the core tenet of meditation is be here, be now. There's something about being grounded, not letting your mind be in the past or in the future. That is, it would be a little hyperbolic of me to say it saved my life, but wow, has it impacted the quality of my life and allowed me to, and this is like the most un-Buddhist statement of all time, but it's allowed me to go harder and faster towards my dreams because I can carry a larger burden of stress and I can deal with more things yeah. because I know how to reset. Well, I don't think that's un-Buddhist at all. I, 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 I think the point, the point of all of that is to be able to actualize your potential, your individual potential, you know, who you need to be. So it, it's to make you more you, you know, uh, in your own particular incarnation, your own particular way. Um, so, and then, you know, watch out world, here you come. Let's get into the tenets of Buddhism because until I read your book and you introduced me to a new word, which I have no doubt will be where you start by explaining the four noble truths. Mm -hmm. Um, but my takeaway of the Buddhist, um, teachings and probably the reason that I didn't pursue it in the way that I pursued Taoism was it was a sense of like life is suffering and you have to detach in order to navigate it well. And I was like, uh, to me, Buddhism felt like the choice. In fact, I will say that Buddhism, until I read your book, which was very recent, uh, I would have described as uh, detachment versus engagement. And so because I, I liked, as I was saying before we started rolling, I keep detachment in my back pocket to make sure that I never get overwhelmed, but I want to engage. And you have a very different way of explaining the Buddhist philosophy, and I'd love to hear it. Well, before I explain it, you, you know, the point of detachment is engagement. So that's the, that's the you, you know, what are you detaching from? You're detaching from trying to control everything too much, you know, in this world that's filled with uncertainty. So we try to control as much as we can. That's the job of the ego. And we can do a lot, but we can't do everything. So then the detachment comes in, you know, not clinging to the pleasant, not pushing away the unpleasant. That's the training of the mind that you start to do in meditation. So people often misunderstand the Buddha's teachings, like, oh, it's just life is suffering. It's too depressing. The point is to, you know, stop trying to be happy and uh, accept the suffering. That's a misunderstanding, in my view, of what the Buddha taught. So the Buddha laid out his psychological teachings the first time he decided to speak, uh, or the second time, really, but uh, very early in his teaching career. He uh, laid out his uh, psychological, spiritual teachings in the form of the Four Noble Truths. Uh, and he did it in the way that medical practitioners of, uh, of his time talked about illness and suffering. So he, he first uh, gave the diagnosis of the condition, then he gave the cause, then he gave the treatment. Um, and in between, he said, there's a, uh, a solution, you know. So uh, when he gave the cause, uh, when, when, when he named, sorry, when he named the, um, the condition, he just used a single word, and the word he used was dukkha, which I think is what you were referencing mm -hmm. before. So 
he just said dukkha, and that's been translated as suffering, but a better translation would be uh, a kind of sense of unsatisfactoriness that permeates our experience. He didn't deny pleasure, he didn't, he didn't deny happiness, but he said that even with pleasurable experiences, you know, they always end at some point. So there's always a kind of leftover, you know, uh, bittersweetness even to intense pleasure because there's something in us that doesn't let go easily, that wants more, that gets a little bit uncomfortable, you know, when it ebbs out. So uh, that sense of unsatisfactoriness he called dukkha. Um, But if you take the word apart, the word dukkha, it actually means hard to face. So ka means face, dukkha, duh is like difficult. There's another word sukha, which means sweet to face, which is the pleasure of life, you know. But the Buddha said there's this quality of dukkha, there's this quality of experience that's hard to face. And our instinctual tendency, this gets to the second noble truth, our instinctual tendency is to turn away from that which is hard to face, you know. And the Buddha said, actually, the reason I'm teaching meditation and so on is because that's training in facing that which is hard to face. And that there's something beneficial, and so this is what I've tried to bring into the practice of psychotherapy, there's something beneficial in allowing ourselves and in training ourselves to be with that which is difficult in ourselves, in our partners, in life, you know, and that when we do that, and I think that's the detachment part that you're keeping in your back pocket, you know, when, when we do that, when we allow ourselves to be uncomfortable, when we recognize that we're clinging a little bit to the pleasures that can't be sustained, you know, when we face those issues, something settles down in us and we're able to actually deal more effectively with the life that we're living, with the hand that we've been dealt. Okay, that is that was really revolutionary for me. The idea that this was not about detachment and moving into the mountains and being completely removed, which was a thing that never sat well. It felt like I was going to miss out on something. Uh-huh. You're already found, in the mountains. Here. Yeah, that I, I found something so pleasurable about going after something, but that yeah. the pursuit was incredibly dangerous emotionally. Unfortunately, I learned this firsthand, but it was incredibly dangerous emotionally if I was valuing myself based on whether I achieved the thing. And it was dangerous emotionally, not because I wasn't even necessarily going to achieve it, but that even in achievement, I couldn't stand in that achievement, that it was temporary by its nature, it was fleeting, and I became obsessed with this idea of you're having a biological experience. And what I mean by that is, your neurochemistry is gonna change, and it could change because we have this sort of lingering sense of unease that I know that this is going to pass, or just that that's the way the world works, and you can never eat a meal so grand that you're never hungry again, you can never drink a glass of water that's so thirst-quenching that you never get thirsty again, and so I was like, hmm, okay, this doesn't make sense, so I need to change how I think about it, but I, it's really a puzzle piece coming together for me to think of it as these are things that are difficult to face. That is the nature of being human. And most importantly, if you're trying to not face them, it becomes more problematic, yeah. not less. Why, though? Well, there's something in, in the way you're describing your own experience 
that speaks to a kind of perfectionism, I think, that uh, a lot of ambitious, talented people uh, have to deal with, uh, where there's, there's um, y- you know, striving and success, but the success is never enough because there's always somebody else who's more successful, you know, or you've reached this plateau and then, as you said, you, you did it and then what's the next thing? And often there's a lot of insecurity underneath the perfectionistic striving. So the, the Buddhist thing comes in, you, you know, to help with that. The, the Buddha himself was one of these perfectionists. You, you know, before he got enlightened, he was trying all the spiritual practices of his day, you know, that were like ascetic practices, not eating all, you know, he was into fasting, he, he was into yoga, he was into all kinds of meditation that took him out of his body rather than keeping him connected to the earth, you know. Um, and he kept getting as far as you could go. You know, he was like the, the best yoga student, the best faster. He was the best anorectic, you know, like uh, uh, only eating like the purest foods that, that, that no one had ever touched, you know. And none of them were working, you know. None of them were working. And that's the kind of thing that in, in, in our world where so much success is possible, so much achievement really is achievable, you, you know, but people still are coming up against the limits of their own minds. And that happened to the Buddha. That's why it's so touching, you know, his own story, his own teachings. And it wasn't until he had a childhood memory, the Buddha, it wasn't until he remembered himself as a young boy sitting under a rose apple tree like sort of blissing out under the tree while his father was in the distance plowing in the fields. And at the height of his perfectionistic striving, his ascetic practices, he remembered himself as a young boy under the tree. And, and I always think that's the first kind of self-analysis that ever happened historically, although maybe Socrates, you know. Um, but he said to himself, why am I thinking of this now? Like, what is this trying to tell me? You know, maybe my, all my striving is like the wrong way to the awakening, to the enlightenment that I'm seeking. Maybe I should listen to this feeling of being a young boy under the tree, feeling joyful. You know, maybe there's some kind of joyfulness that's intrinsic to who I am that I'm not paying attention to, that I should learn how to uh, incorporate into, you know, my regular life. And uh, uh, he, he remembered that feeling, and then he said to himself, yes, I think I'm going to try that direction. And then w- right away a young woman appears, you know, bearing a bowl of rice porridge, you know, to feed the, the hungry Buddha, because he thinks to himself, you know, with a body so emaciated, I'll never be able to uh, sustain this joyful feeling that I'm remembering. So there's something about allowing the, actually the joy, you know, not the suffering, that is deep in the Buddhist teachings that I think we need in today's psychotherapy. You know, just the, the analyst telling me that I was suffering from my Oedipus complex wasn't going to help me, you know, the way finding, finding that joy in my own, in my own heart uh, has helped me. All right. At some point, we need to come back to the other three noble truths. But in, in <laughs> I the, can do it quickly for you. Um, let's come back because you just said something that I think is really interesting. So 
in the book, you talk about some pretty difficult cases, people that really had some profound childhood trauma and how do they find their joy? Like, what is that unwinding? I have a lot of people ask me about childhood trauma. I've had childhood trauma experts on. Childhood trauma freaks me out. It's one of the reasons that I don't have children is that, oh God, I don't remember who said it, Plato, Aristotle, maybe, uh, the only impossible job is raising children. Mm -hmm. And that strikes me as absolutely true. How, if you have gone through a significant childhood trauma and you're in your 40s or whatever, like how do you begin to unwind that and let that joy express itself? Well, that's where, that's where the Buddha's first teachings are really helpful, that there's an aspect to experience that's hard to face. So that could be a, a deep childhood trauma. It often is, you know, or it could be something much more subtle, like uh, uh, in childhood where parents are too busy, too depressed, too drunk, um, too involved in their own careers to give the kind of attention that every child deserves and every child needs. So more of an absence instead of a presence, that's a kind of trauma also. But many of us are carrying some kind of trauma. And the, the tendency with all trauma is to try to look away to try to be normal. So people spend a lot of energy tensing their emotional bodies up to avoid what they actually have already experienced. And then, unfortunately, the tendency is to project, we say, to project those um, traumatic elements onto the present or onto the future. So to be afraid that you know they're grown-up partner is going to hurt them the way their father hurt them, that kind of thing, or that the world is going to collapse the way uh, a, a child's world seemed to collapse. So uh, the psychotherapeutic approach, in my view, to dealing with trauma is to help a person very, very gradually to begin to experience the traumatic remnant of what did or did not happen to them, you know, to sort of lower them in very, very slowly, the way you would go into very cold water, you know, like, like an, an inch at a time kind of thing. But if, if you've ever done that, it becomes tolerable, if, you know, if you go slowly enough. So once the emotional stuff gets metabolized or digested, I, I try to say, um, then we're not the only the traumatized person, you, you know. Like um, I spent a lot of time when I was younger with with Ramdas, uh, the former Richard Alpert, who became a friend and a teacher. And what I always remember from him saying to me was, uh, "You're not who you think you are, Mark. You're not who you think you are." It's like I'm not who I think I am, <laughs> you know. But I think that applies even to people who have been really badly traumatized. You know, they're not only the trauma. You know, and so once they, it, it, um, once they start relating to their traumatic history in a different way, then then the potential exists for them to experience themselves uh, as not only the trauma. Like my one of my good meditation teachers, Joseph Goldstein, always says, uh, it's not what you're experiencing or what you've experienced that matters; it's how you relate to it. So, so that's become like a mantra for me, you know, 
it's not what you've experienced that matters, it's how you relate to it. That we actually have the capacity to change how we relate to experience. That's fundamental to the Buddha's teachings. And that's what's healing. Okay, that's, that is such an important concept and so big and so hard to convey. Mm-hmm. So I just wrote this thing that I called the life map. And it's trying to get across that concept, what I call frame of reference. Your frame of reference is to you what water is to a fish. They don't realize that they're in it or that there is any sense of not being in it. It just is. And finding something to peel away so that you can get under it and realize, oh my God, like this is a construct of my own making. I have built a relationship to this trauma, which does not strike me as a constructed relationship. It strikes me as merely recognizing the fundamental truth of the matter. How do you Mm -hmm. help people other than slowly <laughs> getting them into the emotion, how do you get them to see that like you, you have constructed something that the trauma, yes, is real, it happened, but you've created a way of looking at it, thinking about it, whatever, that's now marring your present and thusly your future? Yeah, well, that question, like how do I actually help people, um, is, is why I wrote the book. Um, because the book describes the Zen of therapy, therapy, uncovering a hidden kindness in life. It's why I wrote it, because the the book is basically centered on a year's worth of psychotherapy sessions that I picked randomly, so not following the same patients, but um, sessions where I felt, oh, maybe I helped this person a little bit in this session. Like, like how did I help them? Because I think psychotherapy, really, it's such an act of faith like, you know, like two people sitting and talking and you're supposed to feel better out of this conversation. And what am I, what am I doing anything really? Like that's always in the same way I was questioning when I first started to meditate. Am I doing it right? You mm-hmm. know, like as a therapist, it's such a, like I trust, I trust that I'm, people keep coming back. So, and they say I'm helping them, but how am I helping them? And how is the Buddhist thing involved in that? Uh, I'm never, uh, I'm never totally sure, um, but because all I'm doing is engaging in the conversation, you, you know, uh, I want to know what's going on inside of them. But I can usually sense or feel how or where they're shutting down uh, around themselves, you know, where they have decided this is who I am, I'm this kind of person, this is what happened to me, this is my limitation, this is all I can do. And there's something in me as a therapist that's always pushing against that. You, you know, like, like um, I think it's like a martial art sort of thing, you, you know, uh, but gentler. But and getting them to reframe? It's like I'm joking, I'm, I'm trying to, it's getting them to reframe, yes, but, but I'm trying to... Uh, insinuate myself into their mind in in some way that they then start questioning what they're saying. Like, this isn't the only way to see. Like, maybe you're misconstruing. Like, what about this? Uh, you know, so I'm playing with them in a certain mental way. But, but the, I can only do that if they're really trusting, if they like me. 
if they're really trusting me, you know. Um, I'd love to give people an example. So there's one in the book that's profound, yeah. which is the child of the two Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty magical reframe. Do you mind walking people through that? No, I'd be happy to. That's the first one in the book. Um, so uh, a patient named Jack, who I've seen for a long time, um, a son of two Holocaust survivors, uh, grew up poor in Brooklyn. Both his parents, parents each had children before the war who got stripped away when they got taken to the concentration camps and killed. Uh-huh. The, the, uh, the father got swept up uh, right when the war began and ended up in Auschwitz and then on a death march, etc. The mother was from Vilnius, educated family, two children, lost the children. Anyway, the parents met in a displaced person camp after the war, they walked to France, they uh, came to Brooklyn, and they had my patient. And he's a brilliant, you know, he went to uh, City University, he's a brilliant guy, ended up in therapy with me. Um, and he would always come into the session like, Mark, when will, when will I ever be healed? When will I ever be healed? And it was a refrain. And when he was younger, the refrain to his parents were, uh, was, uh, was I a good boy today? Uh, because my sense was he felt his parents suffering, but they never talked about it. You, you know, once he overheard, not once, probably more than once, he overheard them. With other Holocaust survivors, they would have conversations, you know, mm-hmm. like, do you remember the dogs? Kind of, those kind of conversations. But, but um uh, they couldn't talk about the the uh, uh, previous children or any. So, so my patient Jack, he would feel the parents' pain, pain as children do. He would take responsibility for it. So, if he was a better boy, if he was a better student, you, you know, maybe they would smile. You know, um, so uh, they're now deceased. The, he's now my age. Um, he's in the office with me. When will I ever be healed? And I had this like sudden flash, like, you don't need to be healed. You were the healer, you you know, like imagine your parents losing those children and then they come to this country and they have you, you know, they're like as difficult as it might've been for them to show you, uh, you know, imagine how incredible that was for them, you know, you and your sister. Uh, And and then I thought of, um, there's a Buddhist um, saint, basically, a Buddhist bodhisattva in China and Japan uh, and Tibet. In uh, in China and Japan, uh, she is called Kuan Yin or Kanan. And then in Tibet, somehow she became a man. And uh, he is called Avalokiteshvara. But Kuan Yin, the Chinese version or Japanese version, uh, Kuan Yin means the word, the name translates as she who hears our cries. So I asked Jack, you know, have you ever heard of this? No. Uh, let me tell you about Kuan Yin, you know, she who hears our cries. Uh, you were like, you were like Kuan Yin. You heard their cries. You came down. You, you let yourself incarnate. You know, you're the healer. And he heard me, you know, he heard me. And for a moment, he felt it, you, you know. So instead of 
when will he ever be healed? Which is sort of what I was saying before, like the old trauma being perpetuated and projected onto the present and the future, you know, like there was something wrong. He didn't know what it was. There's still something wrong. He's incorporated it into himself. There's something wrong with me, you, you know. So for a moment, I got him out of that, you know, by talking this Buddhist stuff. Uh, um, and he, uh, you know, I sent him with all the patients in the book when I wrote the session up. Uh, I sent it to him to review, and so it, the, these sessions that were uh, momentary and fleeting got kind of locked down in an anti-Buddhist way, you know, preserved. But so it's become a really nice touchstone um, for us. And uh, he said he's got lots of statues of Kuan Yin now uh, in his in his home. So uh, the idea of a bodhisattva is really interesting. Somebody that is enlightened, but instead of going, do they transcend to nirvana? Is that the idea? Well, they, it's like, what is nirvana? You know, that's the basic Buddhist. In some views of nirvana, nirvana is like over there somewhere, like, like outside the universe, like the Buddha checks out, you know. But uh, after a couple of hundred years, the people who were actually experiencing nirvana started to question that whole view. And they were like, samsara, which is this world, samsara is nirvana, you know, there's nowhere to go. It's just we're misperceiving what this world is all about. So when we get enlightened, we start to see that, oh, nirvana is, it's, it's right here, right now, it's all around us. There's nothing, there's nowhere else to go. There's nothing to do but to stay here and help other, you know, unfortunate people who haven't yet realized that we're in a beautiful place. We're not in a hell zone, you know, despite what's going on around us. Um, so uh, the Bodhisattva is committed to helping others because there's nothing else to do. They're already enlightened. They see it, you know. It's like they've taken the ayahuasca or whatever. They, but, but it's not a fleeting experience. They know it. And so then they become committed to helping others. So in Tibet, when when uh, Kuan Yin became a male figure and became Avalokiteshvara, they portray him w with a thousand arms. So why does he have a thousand arms? Because he's reaching down for, to all the drowning people to like pull them up out of their own ignorance, you know, out of their own suffering, out of their own tears. Um, so he's got a thousand arms because he's doing it for everybody, you know. It's so interesting that always I, I remember learning about that very early on in my exploration of Buddhism. And I thought oh, that's a really cool idea of somebody sticking around the way that I had heard it was maybe um, my misunderstanding, but that they could be, you know, um, go up and become a god, but instead they go around on the wheel of um, reincarnation and they just keep coming back over and over and over to help people. I uh, always found that a, a heartwarming Definitely uh, heartwarming. Yeah, it's really yeah. cool. Yeah. All right, what are the other three noble, noble truths? truths? The first noble truth is dukkha. There is this unsatisfactoriness that we um, uh, um, ordinarily can't escape from. The second noble truth is the cause of the unsatisfactoriness is clinging or craving or ignorance or delusion, you know, that we uh, misperceive reality. Uh, and in so doing, we hold on to the pleasant, push away the unpleasant, or if there's something perverse in us, we hold on to the unpleasant and push away the pleasant. But whatever we're doing, we're relating in a strange way to reality. That's the second noble truth, the cause. 
The third noble truth is nirvana. You know, there is escape. There is a way out. And the way out is to change how we relate, how we think, how we perceive. And the fourth noble truth is the path. You, you know, how do we change our view of reality? And it has to do with uh, right thought, right motivation, right energy, right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness. There's a slew of uh, the eightfold path, it's called. But it's basically a way of, of training the mind and body. And, and meditation is only, you know, uh, a couple of limbs of the Eightfold Path. People tend to think that it's all about meditation, but meditation is one tool um, that the Buddha talked about. Another very important one is right speech. Uh, and right speech, uh, in its lowest form, people t- say, oh, don't gossip, you know. But right speech has a lot to do with how we talk to ourselves. So uh, the, the uh, Eightfold Path is a way of introducing us to our own inner experience mm. and making us conscious of all the ways that we're telling stories to ourselves that aren't necessarily true. When it comes to platforms that will help you run a business, there is no shortage of options on the market. But if you want to use the best, most advanced, and most efficient platform out there, you need to be using Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. With award-winning customer service, the internet's highest converting checkout page, and a suite of integrated AI tools, Tools, Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy to start, run, and grow a business. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly use Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now 
yahoofinance.com. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride. Because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, the Eightfold Path is going to be really important. But first I want to talk about clinging. So you've given us a definition that we're misunderstanding the nature of the world, but it does feel quite wise to me to pursue pleasure and to eschew pain, certainly from um, how do we get here? So I'm taking a very um, evolutionary approach to saying, okay, this is what kept us alive this long. Maybe in a modern context, it has some pathology or maybe always it had some pathology, but at least it kept us alive long enough to have kids that have kids. Um, Why would it be... uh, an improper understanding of the world to try to cling to pleasure and push away pain? Um, It's not an improper understanding. It's an instinctual thing. So you're absolutely right biologically and so on. It's gotten us very far. It's just, it has limits, you know, so we always come up against it. So even, you know, driving in Los Angeles when there's a lot of traffic, you know, like you're stuck in the traffic. So what can you do? You, you know, uh, you can make yourself as comfortable as possible in the car. You can listen to a podcast. You can put on the air conditioning, you know. But if you have to get somewhere and you're stuck, what can you do? So that, um, that aspect of life is present incontrovertibly, you know. COVID, you know, like where did that come from? Why want to go away? How are we going to deal with this? You know, we do our best, you know, we work from home, we, we stop going out, we do, you know, then it's like years later, what do we, what do we do? Something has to change in the way that we're relating to the world, you know, because there's an unpleasant thing going on, you know, and that's just COVID, you know, so um, you could look at it from that perspective. The other way that I talk about it a lot is around having children. Uh, is with young babies, you know, when you're a parent of a young child, it is not an entirely pleasant experience, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and the child is not an entirely pleasant being as cute as they are. They're, they're a ruthless ball of every emotion that humans are capable of, all fused into one thing, and they're throwing that at you, and as the parent, you have to deal with it, you know, so... If you get offended because your child is uh, is exploding with anger or uh, need at you, if you get a, if you um, uh, push away, if you if you push the child away, or if you yourself pull away, then what kind of parent are you being? So being being a good enough parent requires staying with the unpleasant aspects of 
having children, you know, and that's a huge task that so many of us really, really struggle with. And the, but the Buddhist teaching is such a help because it's, what it's saying is this aspect of experience is unavoidable and we can find our best selves by staying with it, you know, uh, rather than trying to get away from it. And uh, as a therapist, I can, I can uh, uh, assert how important that is for people, you know, because the child, like my patient I told you about, the child feels the parent's pain and assumes that they're the cause. And sometimes they are. But then, say, but, in that but, example. Yes. But then they become, you know, it's not just, oh, I was hungry and, uh, and my mom couldn't uh, find the milk. You, you know, it was like there's something fundamentally wrong with me, you, you know that children begin to take that in. And then, then that, that becomes such a source of identity and shame that people are struggling with long into adulthood. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. That it feels like that brings us back to this idea of reframing, that really what you're doing, okay, I'm stuck in traffic. Mm-hmm. I, uh, there's nothing for me to do. And if there is, by all means, do it. But if there's no way for me to not be stuck in traffic, I can either sit here and be wound up and be angry and wind myself up and make it worse, or I can reframe it. And would the Buddhist encouragement be to find something beautiful in that moment or to just <laughs> luck. accept? Like, what's the take? No, the, well, the Buddhist thing would be you always have your breath. You, you know, the breath. And be grateful? Or no. you have your breath to sort of modulate your neurochemistry? Uh, the, the the um, the Buddha didn't know about the neurochemistry and those <laughs> words, but he knew about the breath. So you you always have the breath. The breath is like the uh, often the central object of meditation. So it's like the place of refuge for for many people. It doesn't work for everybody. Some some traumatized people have um, uh, the breath is too fraught. But for many people, the breath. Is because like their mind is just going to be replete with negative memories? Because they were hiding in a closet while their parents were um, uh, screaming at each other and they were holding their breath, uh, you know, basically, um, some version of that. So the, so the ease with the breath that we look for in meditation is hard to find for some people. And for those people, there are other objects, like just the, the sounds that uh, are ever-present, even within silence that can become a central object of meditation instead. Um, but uh, but for, for many people, the breath works. It's a neutral, it's a neutral object. It connects us to the outside world. You know, is the breath in me or is it out there? So when you're sitting in traffic, if you're not just listening to the radio or whatever, but you're starting to get frustrated, uh, you can bring your attention just to the actual physical sensation of the breath as it enters and leaves the nostrils. And just that is like a, a cue into the uh, a possibility of, of inner peace that is uh, always with you, you know, lurking in the background, even on the highway, you know, even when your child is uh, um, screaming at you, uh, you know, even when you're frustrated it's possible to uh, turn away from the frustration to the object of meditation. Okay, and the purpose of that would be to, again, calm the mind, Yeah. to not cling to the emotion? Because your book has a really interesting relationship to anger and aggression. Yeah. 
now might be the time. So we have, we can try to suppress our anger, which mm -hmm. a lot of people do, and yep. they develop a very unhealthy relationship, which you catalog in the book, really extraordinary. I remember at one point stopping, going, what's the title of this section? Because I was listening to it, uh, and aggression. And I was like, it's interesting, you're talking about kids a lot, and aggression, and I was like, this is not what I expected. Like, there was such a level of honesty and um, sort of forthrightness about how to have a relationship with anger. I was like, in a book called The Zen of Therapy? I was just so pleasantly surprised. Um, so we have what you just described, which is you can sort of turn away to the breath so that the anger dissipates, I would assume. Hopefully, yeah, a little but bit. How do we, what kind of relationship should we have to anger? Um, the relationship that I'm uh, reaching for uh, that we uh, maybe could have to anger, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the v Vietnamese Buddhist teacher who died not that long ago, used to say, Hold anger like a baby, okay? Hold anger like a baby. So what does that mean? Does that mean hold anger the way, you know, rock it like you rock a baby? Or does it mean hold anger the way a baby holds anger, you, you know? So I think he probably meant the former, but, in, but, but there's some way to think about it as the latter also, uh, because in meditation, Yes, the first thing we do is use the breath as a kind of neutral object to quiet the mind, calm the body down, turn away from the frustration. But where meditation goes when you practice it for a while is that everything becomes an object of meditation. So uh, the anger itself becomes an object of meditation. The burglar alarm going off becomes an object of meditation. The flat tire that I had the first day I rented a car uh, a couple of weeks ago be had to become an object of meditation. You know, your own emotional experience, your own thoughts become objects of meditation because you're changing the way that you're relating to them. That's that fundamental thing. When you thing. say that it's an object of yeah. meditation, what do you mean exactly? Well, as human beings, we're capable of being both the thinker and the uh, observer of the thought. You know, we're both subject and object. We have this self-reflective capacity, you know, uh, where we look in the mirror and we know that's us, or we're thinking our thoughts and we know we're thinking our thoughts. So it's a very weird thing, evolutionarily, where we've become capable of this. So um, you can be angry, and then there's somewhere in you, like in Buddhism, they call it a spy consciousness, that's like off to the side, that knows that you're angry and can see, can feel the anger bubbling and can, can witness the angry thoughts. So what we're doing in meditation is we're reinforcing that observational capacity uh, that, that is inherent in all of us. So we're moving from uh, figure to ground would be another way to, of saying it, you know? Figure to figure ground. Figure to ground, like, like figure the, the cup you know, and ground is the space around the cup. So we think we're the cup, like I'm just this angry person, you know, or you're, or you're pissed at me, and I, you know, but there's all this space around the anger, you know, hmm. that's the observational capacity of the mind. So we're, we're training ourselves to be able to be in both places at once, you know, or to oscillate back and forth between this is me and then, oh, you know, and I think that's the relaxation that you felt in the Taoist way, 
of thinking right from from the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, but that you were talking. So, um, so once you once you realize that that's a possibility, then uh, that possibility is with you all the time. So that so then to when, realize that you aren't the anger itself. Yeah, you're not just the difficulty that you're that you're facing, the immediate difficulty, you know, that you have to deal with. But and you could be involved in dealing with it, but you also can be like sort of watching it from the side. And that ability to be also watching it from the side gives you a lot more choice in how you're dealing with the situation. So instead of just like, oh, so we're talking about about children and, you know, young raising uh, uh, infants and so on. So um, the, the infant is having a hard time uh, and you don't know what to do. And uh, the impulse comes to like, just shut up or, you know, <laughs> but most mothers won't resort to that because there's some kind of inherent maternal understanding. We're in, in Buddhist meditation, we're reinforcing that kind of inherent maternal understanding, you know, like we still see, oh, shut up comes up in our minds, mm. you know, but it's just a thought. Like we can just witness it as a thought instead of being propelled by it, you, you know. So that's what the Buddha in, in the Eightfold Path called right action, you know. Instead of taking the bait, our own bait, it, you know, instead of taking our own bait and then acting destructively, mm-hmm. which we're all capable of doing, we learn to recognize the destructive impulse. And that's what a lot of that last uh, section of the book is about, about aggression and so on. We learn to recognize the destructive impulse, not to judge it, you know, uh, to, to recognize that, yes, we're feeling that way because we wish that things weren't the way that they are, um, or interpersonally, like this happens in intimate relationships uh, a lot, you know, I, I wish that you were more uh, what I need you to be, you, you know, and you're not, you, you know, and what where are you, you, you know, and that pisses me off, you know, the way you're talking to me and so on. But then if I can work with my own anger in this way that we're talking, somewhere along the way I recognize that, oh, you're actually a separate person who I don't have control over, you know, who I have to figure out how to relate to kindly, mm-hmm. you, you know. So uh, working with my own anger ultimately leads me to a place of empathy uh, to a place of kindness to the other person that I'm involved with. It can be a long process, but that, but that's the, um, that's the trajectory. The idea of the ego, you've sort of danced with it a little bit here. You go into more detail and I can't remember if it's in the book or just talks I've heard you give, but, um, are we trying to get rid of the ego? Is that a thrust of Buddhism or is it just a changing relationship to the ego? How would you define the ego? The, the, it's not trying to get rid of the ego because we need the ego. For what? Um, we need the ego for, for dealing with the immediate problems that we face. That, that's what the, the ego is all about, dealing with the immediate. It, it's a mediator, in fact. You, you know, the, the, the ego is like, you know, on the iPhone, the thing that counts your steps that, that uh, people are so into. The ego is like counting your steps. You know, it's like, this is what you have to do today. You know, this is in order to, 
satisfy the demands of the environment, you know, be a good person. Uh, you need the ego to like put the garbage out on the right nights and separate the recyclables from, from the rest. You need the ego to do your homework, you know, to and do- to recognize that my wife is a separate person from me and is an autonomous being. Is that um, true? Uh, you need the ego even to meditate, you know, to to sit down on the cushion and watch your breath. That's an ego function, you know. So the ego is like moving us around in the world, mm. you know. That's how, and the ego develops in the uh, uh, the first couple of years of life as the child realizes that oh, they have a mind and that they're separate from their mother, from their father, they have to deal with them, you know, and the ego recognizes that, oh, I'm just this little person in this, in this world that's full of big people, and there's so many more of them, and, what, and I have to go to school, and what, learn to read, and what, how to go to the bathroom, and wipe myself, you know, that's all ego stuff. Um, and the ego wants to be in control, uh, and thinks it should be able to be in control of everything. Uh, but you and we all know people who are so into their egos that they're impossible to be around because they're trying to control everything, including you, you, you know. So um, the Buddha recognized and Western psychotherapists also recognize that the ego is not everything, that one of the things the ego has to learn to do is to relax itself to unburden itself, um, that we don't have to be integrated all the time as I'm Mark and I know who I am and so on, that there's uh, something called unintegration that happens when I'm reading a book or taking a walk in the woods or uh, um, after sex or uh, making art or you know all uh, listening to music so much cultural activity is about allowing yourself to settle into an unintegrated state that which is different from disintegrating the way a crazy person yeah would be define the difference um uh, in unintegration the ego is like safely put aside so it's like the zone uh, it could be like the touch. zone. It could be like the zone. It, it, when the Buddha remembered himself sitting under the rose apple tree with a joyful feeling, it's kind of blissing out under the tree, knowing that his father was there in the distance, that was a state of unintegration. Okay? When you're in church and people are singing together, you, you know, and you're caught up in the swell of uh, the group. Uh, activity mm. that that's a state of unintegration when you're playing basketball and you're you know you're um, sinking the baskets and getting you can feel the ball coming before you know the zone that's a state of unintegration it's there it, it comes you know there's so many different uh, uh, ways that it can manifest itself mm. um, but the and that's very enriching for the ego that's very sustained. The ego doesn't need or doesn't want uh, actually to be in control all the time. You know, we just need it for certain things, and then we have to learn to let it go. That can be scary for people. They feel, especially people who uh, were traumatized when they were young and not uh, didn't have the ego support that uh, parents who are 
present but not too present, give to a young child, you know. Um, that's why the Buddhist father plowing in the fields is like one of our parents, like making dinner in the kitchen, and we're on the floor in the living room, like playing our games and imagining, playing out stories, you know. Imagination is also uh, where we go when we're in a state of unintegration. Mm -hmm. So that's all pleasurable, really, and tolerable. Disintegration is what you see in a schizophrenic uh, uh, person or in uh, someone who's going through a manic episode where they can't control all the stuff that's coming in. Inner and outer has become one, and there's no uh, processing function that's left inside the brain. You know, that's a dysfunctional kind of time, or someone with a panic attack, uh, you, you know, where the anxiety has just taken over. Mm -hmm. That's a, like a state of disintegration. That's very unpleasant. Uh, um, but so, uh, so we need the ego, but we don't need it all the time. Right. Okay. Eightfold path. So one, is there, I don't know if you have them memorized, but if you do just a quick run through at a high level of what they are, and then I'm, I know I'm super interested in, in learning more about meditation and how to leverage that. But there might be more on the Eightfold Path that we should talk about. Um, the, eighth, the Eightfold Path is basically just a way of cataloging uh, that we can learn to apply this basic teaching of not clinging uh, uh, in every aspect of life. So... Uh, the first couple of limbs of the Eightfold Path are about uh, right understanding, about right thought. Uh, so it's like how we're thinking about things. Do we think that this reality where our impulses are uh, driving us, you know, is this the right way to be living or the wrong way to be living? You know, you know? So with right, with right thought, with right understanding, we start to question the way Ram Dass is uh, uh, to me, you know, like, you're not who you think you are. You know, that's right thought. You're not who you think you are, you, you know, rather than buying into everything that your thoughts are telling you. And so is that the idea of recognizing you're not who you think you are just so you don't overinvest in the, yes. uh, the story that you're replaying in your mind? Totally. Is that to give you flexibility so that you can, you talked earlier about realizing your potential, which I was not expecting you to say, but it's super encouraging. <laughs> um, is that the idea that if I, if I'm too fixated on who I think I am, then I don't open myself up to what else could be. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And that, you know, uncertainty is such a uh, fact of life. You, you know, so how do we navigate uncertainty? Mm. You know, do we do we navigate it by trying to be certain all the time? It, you know, that gets us, you know, partway there. But the Taoist thing is, you know, like b flexibility, like you're saying. How mm. do we how do we work with uh, that? We don't know what's coming in the next moment. You know, we what's death going to be like? You know, like let alone life. Uh, <laughs> So yes, that's what that's what all that is about. Okay, and then um, the next the next three aspects of the eightfold path are all about being in the world. They're all about relationship to the world. It's like right livelihood, right speech, those kinds of right action. I think those are the three. So, um, 
and you can think about them in a sort of superficial way or you can kind of probe into them and try to get a little deeper with them. So, mm-hmm. so right speech, as I mentioned before, can just be about like not idly gossiping, but it can also be about, you know, like how are we talking to ourselves? Um, right livelihood can be about like not trading in arms, you know, um, but it can also be about you, no matter what you're doing, working for the benefit of others, which would be, you know, sort of where the Buddhist thing is leading. Um, And then the last uh, chunk of the Eightfold Path is about meditation. It's about how important it is to train the mind. And so there's right concentration and right mindfulness. And what are we training the mind to do exactly? Uh, We're training the mind uh, to uh, know itself um, fully. Uh, and therefore to be able to be in the world uh, uh, as, uh, I like to say, partners with the capacities that constitute us. So uh, that, that's another way of saying realizing your full potential. Mm. Partners, partners with our capacity. With the capacities that constitute us. Is that is that talking about the malleability of that and that, okay, I have my potential, but I actually have to go acquire skills. So that, that sequence is how I think through life, but I think it's more you, you having your potential, but you have to find it, you know, cause we don't, we, we, I mean, certainly my experience was like, I don't know who I am, you you know, like, like here I am, you know, I like went to school. I was good in school. But I don't, you know, but inside, like, what, what, you, you know, so, so, I mean, I'm just talking super personally, but that process of actually being okay with not being sure about who or what I was, you, you know, the, the Buddhist thing gave me permission to not be sure, you know, because mm-hmm. it talks so much about non-self, you know and emptiness of self, you know. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation, and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. You've Uh, talked about that, though, as like a womb versus a void. Which I found really interesting. Yeah. So, well, because that's what it became, you, you know. So, so I was troubled because I don't, I don't know who I am, you, you know, and what am I supposed to be? What am I doing here? And and what am I capable of? You know, all that sort of insecurity, um, and 
want the normal way of dealing with that, uh, you know, would be, okay, I'm going to go to medical school and become a doctor. And now I'm a doctor. And, you know, like, so you have to listen to me because uh, I know what's best for you or whatever. Uh, and my father was a doctor, so that, so that was sort of obvious, and I did become a doctor. Um, but what the, what the Buddhist uh, approach gave me was, and meeting those first meditation teachers and what they were saying to me was, you know, you don't really have to know the way you think you have to know. Like, why don't you just relax and feel yourself, you know? Like, why don't you just leave yourself alone and be? And, and, I, and I tried to go there in the book, like what, what is all this about being, being rather than doing, mm. you know, because I think it was so important for me. So, so why don't you leave yourself alone? Why don't you just like let yourself be? Why don't you see who you are that way? Why don't you discover who you are by relating, you know, naturally to the world, to other people, to yourself, you know? Okay, how? You, you know, well, I'll give you some teachings about that. This is what right concentration is this is what right mindfulness is why don't you go sit on that cushion over there and practice with yourself you know and just just sit there and try being with yourself you know in an open non-judgmental uh kind way and see what you become what do you do if you do that and you don't like what you see fine you you that's a lot of the experience (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's why so much of the book ends up talking about anger and aggression and frustration and so on. That's, you know, there's a whole aspect to life that we want to look away from. That's dukkha, you know, that's going to be there. So that's to be expected. Mm-hmm. So then you have to learn to, you know, okay, how, how can I be with that which I don't want to see about myself? you know, my own inner violence, for instance, you know, so I can come to terms with that. And then, oh, those are just thoughts. You know, that's just a feeling, you know. Okay, so this gets to one of the reasons that I think people struggle with meditation is they <laughs> sit it's down. so unpleasant. Yeah, they yeah. sit down and suddenly their thoughts are unfettered. So you either are yeah. dealing with the monkey mind and your mind is just racing like crazy and you're thinking about your grocery list and all the things you have to get done and, oh God, the kids are freaking out or they have a dental appointment or I have a dentist appointment, whatever. And you've got that side. But then you've also got what might be worse, but takes time to get to, which is maybe even more terrifying, which is all of the trifling things fall away and you get to some deep wound that you're worrying over or... Or you get to uh, all the people you've hurt. You know, I think that might be even more painful. You, you know, we, we think about the deep wounds and that does come up for people, but there are these other kind of wounds like all the pe- all the people that we've hurt like in AA what what where people go when they get sober you know mm-hmm. and they have to make amends uh, or they want to make amends um, that that kind of stuff comes up too and that's very hard to look at very painful you know people you've lost or people you've hurt or your own destructive actions you know let's take a really gnarly one you've hurt somebody that has since passed away yeah and now there's no making it right right now what yeah, you, 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 um, instead of looking away from that, instead of tensing up or feeling ashamed, you know, in a self-destructive way, uh, you acknowledge and you feel the pain of that. 
and uh, in the Buddhist psychology, they they divide um, emotional and um, cognitive experiences up into helpful and unhelpful, you know, wholesome and unwholesome categories. And they have one that's called remorse, you know, which is a wholesome, helpful, healthy uh, uh, feeling, mental feeling. Uh, so I think uh, uh, remorse that would come up in that kind of situation, you fill your mind with it, you know. You let it, you let it uh, get as big as it could be, you know, sitting on a meditation retreat, you know, for as long as it, you know, and you breathe uh, in and out uh, with the feelings of remorse. Now, is there some sense of like that is the therapy where I'm yeah. going to sit with it, I'm not fighting it, I'm not clinging to it, I'm letting it be, it's getting big. I'm like just letting it go as much as it needs to. I don't see why somebody would do that if that isn't ultimately going to be therapeutic. It's therapeutic in the sense that it's um, uh, supporting that aspect of the Eightfold Path, uh, you know, right action in this case, where it's going to guard you against doing it again. You know, because you've really felt, you know, mm. uh, there's a story in the Buddha's time of a murderer na- named uh, Angulimala. Uh, and Angulimala means like a, 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 something like a mandala of fingers. Uh, he had the or thumbs. He had the severed thumbs of all the people he had murdered in a necklace around his neck. Charming. And uh, yeah, and he comes to the Buddha and he becomes a, uh, a great student of the Buddha as a great enlightened being. But in order to get there, he had to, uh, you know, feel the destruction that he had wrought upon the world, you know. Um, and so by allowing that to happen, he's able to somehow transcend it. Because uh, when I think about, and I mean, look, you know better than I as a therapist, but when I think about people that are really struggling with something, they often struggle forever. Like they mm-hmm. never find resolution. There are people in my life who I love very much and they are still struggling with things that happened to them or that they did. And it's like, yo, we're talking about things that are 50, 60 years old. Like, what is happening? So certainly the default answer for a non-meditator is not that you can obsessively think about it and it will get better. So what are we doing in meditation well, uh, that gives us that chance? Well, here's what we're doing. The, the, the unenlightened view, I think, is we should be able to finish this thing once and for all and be free of it, you know? Uh, And I think the enlightened view is going back to it's not what you've experienced that matters, it's how you relate to it. Mm. So that how you're relating to either the pain you've caused or the trauma that that was inflicted upon you changes. So it's still going to be there. It's part of your history. You know, we, like we, until we get Alzheimer's, we're not forgetting our history, you know. Uh, so we're carrying it all with us. But how we're carrying it, you know, holding it like a baby, you know, or, you, you know, uh, really encumbered by it. Like um, Ram Dass used to say that uh, after all his spiritual work, psychedelic work, you know, uh, therapy work, uh, what he was carrying, which had seemed like these huge, gigantic monsters, you know, hovering over him, had become like delightful little schmooze, his language, you know. So, but they're they're still all him, you know. So, but I think it's more like that. 
It's very interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, meditation is is really fascinating. There's multiple kinds of meditation. I'll I do what I call just breathe. It's not really mindfulness because I'm not in there dealing with demons or anything like that. I'm just no, it could coming be, back there, to there the could breath. be a mindful quality to just breathing if you're if you're attending. Uh, uh, dispassionately to the breath that you're being mindful of the breath. But how do, how would it ever get to, uh, that next level of like, and I mean, look, I, there are enough things that bother me. I certainly don't think that I, um, don't have things, but when I meditate, that isn't what I struggle with. What I struggle with in meditation is, um, not that I struggle with it. The reason I meditate mm-hmm. is that I can feel what I call background radiation. It's building. It's stress. It's anxiety. The mm-hmm. anxiety for sure is tied to insecurities. And am I going to be able to do what I'm trying to do? What are the implications of doing it or not doing it? Um, knowing that achieving is never going to work, but like it's still fun, but it's this weird balance. So these are all the things that like I'm trying to release is probably the right word. But I think of it as just releasing it in the moment to not let it like build up and create this. Um, using my words, obviously, but not creating this um, neurochemical overwhelm. So something is happening. It's causing me to to really get clinical, to secrete um, cortisol. And so, you know, maybe my heart rate is racing. My blood pressure is going up. I feel completely uneasy. And I just really want to get back to neutral. Man, meditation works, and I mean works every time. It is crazy. It is a, I was actually a little sad because there is an ongoing debate between my wife and myself because I want her to meditate. She hates it. And you said, yeah, meditation is just not for everybody. But man, from the first breath I took from my diaphragm, I was like, hold on. Like this is, regardless of what I'm thinking about, physiologically, this is moving me into a different state and it feels awesome. Like I love it. I just feel relaxed. And because of my work, I go through things at times where there's just so much money on the line. It's very stressful. And even in those times, I have found that I'm never more than 45 minutes away from equanimity. And but it isn't uh it's not a thinking through tragedy or anything like that. Well, not everyone has the tragedy to th- to think through. So you don't have to go searching for it. <laughs> so that's that seems just fine. The um what you described as the background radiation, like I think there's a way that you might be being more mindful of uh um of the background radiation, not just the breath than you think. In terms of a reframe? In terms of uh, allowing uh, that which has accumulated and bothering you to uh, um, settle down under the umbrella of your awareness, you know, which it, which it will do if you leave it alone. Why does it settle? And, and uh, I think we have to define settle. So when you say that, I interpreted that to mean that I'm coming to a peaceful acceptance that it is mm-hmm. I'm not is that what you mean by settle yeah you're you're ones? not um uh, exacerbating it mm. you're not in a tense relationship with it or ordinarily i would guess if you're anything like me in your regular day you'll be wrestling with it you, you know like there'll be something in there that's bothering you you know mm. uh and you'll your mind will be going there uh but what you're describing by centering yourself on the breath which you love 
uh, and which you have a lot of confidence about, but you're aware of the background radiation, you know, but you're leaving it alone. You, you know, you're leaving it alone, but you're not ignoring it. You know, you're so you're in that kind of middle zone that I think meditation brings you to. E- even if you're not deliberately telling yourself that that's what you're doing, you're doing it. Mm. Um, so, uh, in, you know, you, it seems to be seems to be uh, uh, a helpful thing. It's definitely a helpful thing. And I have found there's a one-two punch for me. So meditation is, is the way that I deal with the background radiation. And beliefs are how I make sure that not too much background radiation builds up. Mm-hmm. So, um, for instance, if you think that your value is determined by your success, your accolades, your acquisitions, whatever, um, I, I have experienced firsthand that that just is a horrible way to live because it all feels so fragile and so tenuous. And I'm just like, I've got it, but I could lose it. And so it's like, okay, well, that just feels like it's raising my background radiation. So I don't want to do that. So what's another frame of reference? And I do wonder sometimes for a long time, I was like, you know, I don't know how I got on the path of what I'll call um, pursuing a growth mindset. And then as I kept like trying to figure out like what was that first moment, I realized it was reading the Tao Te Ching Hmm. and going back to it, it, it plants the seeds. Like Mm -hmm. obviously Lao Tzu never would have used those words, but it plants the seeds for reframing, for recognizing that you can improve, even if all you're doing is improving at living and not being stressed out and grasping and clinging and all that. And so that began to open my mind of, oh, okay, well, I suck at this now, but I could actually get better. And so then it became easier to apply that to other things. So through beliefs about how I view the world and the thing that I encourage myself and others to do is look for the true and optimistic interpretation Mm -hmm. because you don't want to divorce yourself from reality. It won't lead you anywhere useful. Uh, but at the same time, there's always an optimistic, like the 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 Holocaust survivor, the mm-hmm. child of the Holocaust um, parents. That was the one where I was like, yes, exactly. Like even in a situation like that, your parents are already gone. There's nothing more to do. They lived through the Holocaust. They lost their kids. Like, oh, God. Like how is that not just generational trauma upon generational trauma? And yet you can believe there's always an optimistic and true frame in this, which you found for him obviously alleviated some of his pain. That's how I get to the don't make things worse Mm -hmm. than they need to be Mm -hmm. by laying down these, what I'll call the the fundamental beliefs of how the world works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you're doing therapy for yourself. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Therapy, man. That's, uh, that's really fascinating. How much, in the book, it seems like you use Buddhism a lot in therapy, but you reference a lot that you don't. Mm-hmm. Why don't you? Um, why don't I use Buddhism in yeah. therapy? Like, why isn't it just straight up, hey, over the door, it says Buddhist oh, therapy. That would be too, um, uh, uh, too alienating for too many people. Uh, and and I've, I've never wanted to be like a you know, proselytizer, even though I, I sort of see myself as a translator of uh, Buddhist thought, you know, into Western psychological language kind of thing. But n- people come, people come for all kinds of reasons and need all kinds, everybody needs something different. So where the Buddhist thing is helpful, you know, it's not always 
quote unquote Buddhist, you, you know. So and, and I think that's part of the fun of being a therapist uh, and of being uh, inspired by these things is if I really understand them in any kind of way, how can I use them so that people might not even know that they're Buddhist, mm. you, you know? Um, so, um, so I'm sort of playing both sides, I think, and as you're, uh, I think, rightfully recognizing from the book. And the idea there is just about alienating them. So if they were open to it, you would lean more into it? Oh, if people are open to it, I lean into it. If people want to learn, uh, you know, uh, to meditate or go on a meditation retreat, or I help guide them to uh, places and people that I think are good. Mm. Um, so I'm very encouraging if people want to be encouraged. Um, You've talked about psychedelics. I'm mm-hmm. curious, like, so I've never done them. Well, I've microdosed, but I found it, meh, there was nothing that I'll call useful in that for me, mm-hmm. um, which I was sad about. But I haven't yet macrodosed. Mm-hmm. Is it useful? What is it doing? Um, I think it's an open question. Uh, um, I think for a lot of people, um, during the first wave or the wave that I was aware of when I was um, in college and so on, uh, it gave people a a vision, you, you know, like like the curtains parted for uh, for a moment, and people saw that oh, this wasn't the only way to look at reality, the conventional way, you know, that there's more here than we think, you know. Uh, our minds are capable of more, and the, the world is more alive, you know. That, uh, so I think it was very inspiring for a lot of people. Um, uh, many people couldn't handle it, uh, and it didn't help them at all. It probably hurt them. And by um, what throwing something ugly in their face without the right frame, yeah, freaking them out, making the, just people getting super anxious, or some people actually getting psychotic on it. You know, anything can happen. Mm. Um, uh, I think it inspired a lot of people to try to uh, uh, bring that spiritual uh, element that they that they glimpsed uh, uh, in their psychedelic journey to bring it more into their regular lives. So, so it's sort of interesting to me that it's cycling back again, you know. Um, and, and is th- it mostly a dissolution of the ego? And so you, you're able to perceive the world from a radically different lens? Yeah, I think it's be- that, that, that's one way, one good way of describing it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I, I am interested and yet I never do anything to pursue it. And I think part of it is if you told me guaranteed you're going to have a good trip, I'd be like, okay, I'm far more interested uh-huh. in that. Um, but even that, I know that there are some people that do MDMA with psilocybin, I think. And so it, I don't think anything will guarantee a good trip, but it certainly sets you up about as well as you can be set up for it. it it's your own mind, whatever you're doing. So you, we all know the... Um, uh, the infinite possibilities of our minds, you know, for both good and bad. Yeah. I don't know if everybody knows mm-hmm. that. I uh-huh. think that you probably have people that, man, if they could just drown out their mind, they'd be a lot happier. Until I discovered meditation, that was very much my stance mm-hmm. was like, God, I just want to stop thinking about this. Like, this is driving me crazy. And yeah, the mind, I think, is, you know, it's super interesting to me because you live in a nexus where people come to you because they want help but watching people struggle that aren't 
Like they don't seem to either know that help is possible, they don't want the help, maybe it makes them feel weird. Certainly, it's only really been recent that being able to say, oh, I struggle with anxiety or depression or whatever is like, oh man, like, you know, hopefully you get help. Before it was like, oh, Jesus. Yeah, you like, couldn't even was, talk about it. Yeah, it was like yeah. mental illness, like yeah. you're crazy. Yeah, It was so uncomfortable. And I remember when I first started experiencing anxiety, it was before this whole revolution where I did not want, I didn't even want my wife to know huh. that I experienced anxiety for years I kept it from her until it was getting so bad I was like I have to tell her just because she's got to be wondering like what is happening and so finally I was like look I get really anxious but I for sure thought she was going to think less of me and so I did not want to tell her it seems so unmanly to be anxious and yeah because I spent so much time feeling like I was sort of in private fisticuffs with my own mind I certainly didn't think of it as a an infinite place. I was just like, oh, God, well, that's again, that's like the, the Buddha's dukkha, you know, like, like an aspect to life that you don't want to look at. That's mm. unsatisfactory, you know, that even you, even you didn't want your wife to see, you know, and so that's boxing you into yourself, you know, in, in an uncomfortable way. Mm. So it's a good thing you didn't take psychedelics then I would say. Oh yeah. That, that <laughs> might've sure. uh, come yeah. bursting out of you. Uh, I can only imagine. Thankfully I've, my mom somehow managed to instill an aversion to drugs and alcohol in me. And so I didn't even have my first drink of alcohol until I was 26. Hmm. Uh, and even at that was basically my wife was bribing me to try it. And so, and I don't have an addictive personality, so I don't, I don't find myself compelled to pursue that stuff. But yes, hmm. it is probably a very good idea that I did not at that time. Now, I assume you have tried psychedelics? You could assume that. I could assume that. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. If you had done them, mm -hmm. uh, is there any sort of revelatory insight? Um, the the revelatory insights that I, that I've had that have been sustaining for me have all come in on these meditation retreats. Mm. Um, is it the silence or just the amount of time you spend meditating? I don't know. I, I think... Um, The first, the first retreat that I went to, uh, where I just did what they told me to do, you know, like watch the breath as it comes in the nostrils and goes out of the nostrils, and you know, uh, when you're walking, pay attention to the sensation of your feet as they uh, lifting, moving, placing, and I just did it, you, you know, um, uh, as best I could, and after three or four days. And it's not like continuous. It's supposed to be continuous, but it's never continuous because there's meals and you, you know, take a walk and uh, take a nap and whatever. But basically, I was doing a lot of meditation. And at some point out of nowhere, I was just filled with, you know, the most pleasurable, loving, uh, blissful, joyful feelings that I ever, you know, had no idea I was capable of of uh, experiencing such, uh, um, uh, what, what adjective could we use? Not exactly transcendent, because they were very uh, grounded, you know, but uh, out of this world kind of feelings, only they were in me. Um, and you weren't aiming for that, you were just No, well, I, I had no idea it was there, you, you know, zero idea, that, and that, like, there it was. So I was like, oh, this meditation thing is really, really work, you know, it's really something, it's a real thing. Um, uh, so, um, 
you know, that uh, uh, just turned my my mind around in a certain way. Like, oh, there really is more to this, more to me, more to this, more to the whole thing than I ever could have imagined. Mm. So, And you elucidate it very well in the book, The Zen of Therapy. Oh, thank you. Where can people follow you? Where can they get the book? Uh, I think they can get the book most places. Um, and uh, I have a Facebook page if people want to look at the various posts that uh, that come up about, uh, you know, about uh, uh, things from the book or uh, talks that I've given or whatever. Amazing. That's about it. And what's the Facebook page? It's Mark Epstein, MD. There we go. Awesome. Yep. Boys and girls, I'm telling you, meditation is one of those. Mark will tell you that not everybody is not for everybody, but I think everybody should at least try it. It has changed my life in ways profound. Uh, the Zenotherapy is a phenomenal book. I think you will enjoy it very much. I highly encourage you guys to give it a read. And speaking of things that I highly encourage you to do, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace. <laughs>